Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And as always, we want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support, and thank you for hanging out with us on another Monday. Joining us, as always, is the always loyal, always there, Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing, sir? Hey, I'm, I'm doing well. How are you guys? I'm well. And joining us once again, I think he may. He may. Now that Jeff is official member of the show, I think Mr. Jared Frederick, historian and author, World War II historian, living historian. I think, sir, you may take the title for the most um, reoccurring guest on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I think that may be your title to take now, sir. This is what All right, f- what an honor. Fourth? Please. I know you've been on more than three, so this has got to be your fourth or fifth appearance. I, I think it's my fourth. If I had a producer, I'd have him go back in the archives, but nay, it's just me and my dog. And, uh, well, we ain't got that sort of time. But thank you once again for um, joining us. Now, before we get started, I just had a thought, you know, Henry, with the little intro I just did. Oh, and by the way, for those of you, Jeff is not with us this week because he is traveling the world via a dually with... <laughs> Leave this up to a... A retired army personnel who was driving his family from Texas to New Jersey to get an inverter and a Mr. Coffee so he can brew his coffee live while driving down the interstate without stopping. He has equipped his truck with a Mr. Coffee percolator that sits so promptly on his console so he does not have to bother himself with gas station coffee or the like. So, But Jeff will probably be back with us next week. He may even be joining us remotely. But uh, he is on his way to New Jersey, or is currently in New Jersey, somewhere throughout the world. But, you know, with our little intro, Henry, if you don't mind me saying this, and I think it was even featured in the Pacific, and and you and I jokingly, we um, sometimes would finish our text messages this way, but it's more of a, a sign of decorum and things the way things used to be. And that was the way that your father would sign his letters, even to you and your brother and your family members. And just for the enjoyment of our audience, oh, yeah. could you relay the way that your father would sign his letters to his correspondents? Yeah, um, <clears throat> and you are correct. They did portray this in, in the first episode of The Pacific. But when my dad would leave me a note like, you know, hey, make sure you do this, make sure you take care of this, whatever. He would sign it Y-H-A-O-S. And that stood for your humble and obedient servant, Dad. Can we please return to a time where even when we're asking our kid to bend over and press the power button on the Roomba, because, well, that's all they have to do when we ask them to vacuum the house now, right? <laughs> Just yeah. your honorable, humble servant, Dad. Can we get back to some, can we reintroduce some decorum into society? Decorum. I know yeah. Jared agrees with us on this fact. We need chivalry. To bring, we need chivalry. We need decorum. We need overall respect to our fellow persons unless they see that's the thing it's weird we've gone from a society where people is given respect until they show that they don't deserve it to now i don't like you i don't want to know you you have to earn even the most little bit of my time because well the world falls around me <laughs> i think it'd be great if we just just revert back just a little bit i think society would go a long way if just bring back a little decorum so but yeah it's, that, that would be nice don uh, memories. Hey, how Jared, how have you been, friend? You've been busy. I, I have been staying busy as always, uh, but productive busy, uh, good busy. 
uh, doing a lot of education and outreach through the various ways that I can and trying to spread the history gospel just like you, good gentlemen. Have you made the transition to full-time author yet? I mean, you're, you got to be you got to be almost there because the last time we had you on, you were promoting your your book that you partnered up on, which was the fantastic book, and I I believe Henry read it as well about uh, Mr. Dick Winters, and more importantly about the letters he wrote and the relationships he maintained. We after I read that book after having you on, we spoke so highly of that book. It's just that is almost like next to the book you're promoting now, but as far as easy company goes, that is like the, that is the book to have. If you consider yourself an easy company, you know, fanatic, cause that just, it so well rounds off that storyline. And then this book that you're putting out now, and I'll let you promote it here in a second is kind of like even a step further for just the airborne in general and the 101st of that time period. You've got to be so, I mean, you're just rolling from one book to the another, right? I mean, the research involved in these books are just crazy. Well, I've, uh, I've never been one to be bored. <laughs> uh, and you can ask my, my parents about this. Uh, but as, as soon as I was in fifth grade, I, I knew I wanted to be a historian. And so I've, I've been on the move since I, I was a teenager. Uh, and I really enjoy sharing stories with people. And at first, you know, when I was thinking of co-authoring these various Band of Brothers-themed books, you know, an initial thought that went through my mind is, what else could be written about these guys that mm -hmm. hasn't already been written? And it was very intimidating writing books about Dick Winters and about Ronald Spears, these iconic officers of the 101st Airborne Division. But... As I began to research a lot of this with my co-author, Eric Dorr, uh, we, we realized that um, the, some other books and, and the films, they really only scratched the surface because even in a 10-hour series, you can't convey a whole person's life in all of their complexities. Uh, things are going to be condensed. Uh, things are going to be abridged. Uh, and especially in regard to Ronald Spears, uh, he was just a closed door mystery. He was more that like many a... people wanted to know about. Uh, and so once we started diving into the primary sources, we realized that there were additional stories to tell and that people were eager to hear about them. Uh, and so those were the foundations for these two books back to back, which I like to think of as companion pieces to an extent. Oh, absolutely. And with the subject matters of Ronald Spears, which by the way, the book is in fact, Fierce Valor, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. When it comes to Ronald Spears and obviously with the miniseries HBO, it's, they did it to, to leave a little suspense and, and the character development, but also because of the way Stephen Ambrose's book was done. Um, there's very little known about, you know, when people talk about Ron Spears, what they know about the book and maybe, okay, he's a guy who may have potentially done this sort of what some could consider a war atrocity. And he's a guy who ran through enemy fire to jump over a base to, I mean, over a wall to get in contact with a, a, a platoon that was sent out on a wild goose chase by a, by a, uh, scared and incompetent pl platoon leader. That's pretty much all we know about Ron Spears, you know, from the movie, other than he was super brave and, and outstanding. I'm sure you came across a lot 
of content that really surprised you and probably helped you um, define him more as a real person and not this mythical character that we know from Band of Brothers? One of the great challenges as we were embarking on this endeavor uh, is that we had to start off by peeling away the layers of myth. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, to an extent, uh, I think that's uh, a good beginning uh, for readers. Uh, cast him in the perception as how people know him. And then as the journey continues, try to introduce the real man. Um, and so just to give you a little bit of insight on the methodology that we used uh, amidst our research, I'll, I'll preface all of that by saying that, that we wrote this during the pandemic when nothing was open. What a perfect time. When we couldn't go anywhere to do research. Uh, and so we relied very heavily on a cadre of fellow historians and Spears family members oh. who were gracious enough and generous enough to share their various bits of information with us as we were moving along. Um, on top of that too, uh, my co-author has a very substantial collection of Easy Company artifacts and also textual documents at the museum that he curates and that's the Gettysburg Museum of History. And a core element of a lot of this material is the written correspondence that Dick Winters had with Ronald Spears over subsequent decades. Uh, and these letters were a gold mine uh, that clarified, that corrected, that offered additional insight and context. Uh, and those letters were, were the true beginning of the conversation. Uh, thereafter, we tried to bring some of these disparate conversations uh, into chat with one another, uh, if you will. Uh, you know, this person said this, this person said that. Who was really there? Who was actually in Spears's platoon at this given moment? Sure. Uh, and so these are the sorts of scenarios that we offer readers. And as we were moving throughout the text and writing it, one thing that we were very mindful of was a sense of balance because we did not we did not want to portray him uh, one as a war criminal or as a villain which some people say he is uh, nor did we want to participate in just blind hero worship or hagiography yeah. as well and so uh, we really tried to find a middle ground that shows the the nuance uh, the moral gray area that individuals have to confront in wartime. And certainly Ronald Spears was no exception to that sort of dynamic. Uh, and so that's a little bit of the background about the information we had and how we set out to craft this narrative. Three things I want to pause on real quick before we advance. You were talking about, you know, oh, we did this during a pandemic. And my first thought was, great, perfect idea, perfect time to write a book when nothing's open. Then I thought, crap, how do you research a historical book when nothing's open, especially government entities? I mean, luckily, you know, your Eric has access to a museum, so that was open to him. But as far as you go in your normal research policies, you had to, as you said, reach out to other living historians who had access to some stuff because it's not like you could go down the old National Archives. <laughs> They're all boarded up. So compared to your, the research you've done for other books, that, that in and of itself has probably made it a little more tricky on that side, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, we lucked out, though, because either myself, Eric, or some of our friends and colleagues, they had already obtained a lot of regimental and company records from the National Archives or from other federal libraries, uh, things such as after action reports, morning reports. Uh, I, I made ample use of ancestry.com, newspapers.com. Uh, and there's so much out there that's digitized now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, museums and libraries really tried to expedite and accelerate this process of digitization during the pandemic, knowing very well that their doors might not be open for a long time. And so uh, the world was adjusting and uh, we historians were adjusting right along with it. The other thing I wanted to ask you, because we know, you know, when you did the book on Dick Winters, a lot of that came from um, personal material letters that was actually donated to Eric and his museum. Was it when you guys were going through the letters and trying to figure out what your research material was going to be or what the basis of the book was, was it at that point when you came across some of these personal um, letters to Spears that you said, okay, maybe this might turn into something? Is that Was that the opening door or was this something that came along later? I was very hesitant at first to embark on writing a biography about Ronald Spears because initially I was worried that there wasn't going to be enough material sure. to work with. Paint I, I thought, the corner. Uh, you know, these Spears winners letters, they're fascinating, they're revealing, but is there enough? Uh, but, you know, luckily through a lot of other literature through things that the family was able to provide. Uh, I, I like to think that we pulled it off. Uh, and I, I think uh, that my co-author and I, hopefully, if, if we did it service, uh, we offered as definitive a biography as there can be on this rather mysterious figure. Um, that's not to say that there aren't still some, some plot holes and some mysteries in his story. Uh, but we worked with what we had, and uh, we tried to give this officer due credit and justice and be fair with his story. And I think people can appreciate that. I mean, Henry Henry's a perfect example. You know, when it comes to World War II, people think, oh, so, so long ago, what's the harm? What's the damage? Henry could probably list off both hands of relatives of people who were around during the war, some of them. Uh, you know that we know by name of some who aren't whose whose family members are around and they would know and i appreciate the fact i'm sure henry appreciates the fact that you guys said that you a didn't want to hear a worship but two didn't want to paint him in the corner of going down the you know the reputation that he may have gotten from the movies or the book of what he may or may have not done and that you really wanted to bring all the evidence out because there are family members there are people who that name is still associated with and you don't want to do their family a disservice because you want to push some books. And so I think it's a great sign of your integrity and your honesty that, Hey, let's look at the information we have and present him as a real person and not either a, a superhero or B something else. And I think that is tremendous. And I, cause perfect example, we all heard, you know, spear, uh, not Sobel, Lieutenant Sobel, his family was a little, as respectfully so, a little maybe upset about the reputation that the miniseries portrayed it for his, their family. And so you wouldn't want to do the same disservice to Spears. 
Right. And that was very much on our minds. And, you know, when when authors like us collaborate with family members, it's always a very delicate line mm-hmm. to walk. It's a tightrope of sorts um, because you don't want to uh, sanitize or censor things that the, the family might find sensitive. Yep. Um, but at the same time, you want to respect their wishes because after all, they are providing you material. Uh, and so um, I'm, I'm happy to say um, that the, the various wings of Spears's family uh, have, have offered us very good, good feedback and they appreciate the book and they've learned a lot. Uh, they, they've thanked us because they've said that it's, it's offered a, a fuller picture for sure. uh, this man who was even to them somewhat of an enigma. Uh, and so that's uh, some of the the highest praise that we could have hoped for. Well, absolutely, because we know most of these guys, they didn't come home and talk about their exploits because everybody was there. Nothing to talk about. Everybody was there. And so, you know, my grandfather, all I know from his time in wars, he worked grave registration in Europe. And that's all I know because he never talked about it. But uh, so I'm sure they had a lot to learn by the research that you've done. Henry, I'm going to let you jump in and uh, ask Jared some questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so Jared, were you and Eric actually on Angus Wallace's World War II podcast? Uh, yes, uh, that was about a year ago, and we were talking about our previous collaboration, and that was uh, Dick Winters' letters yeah. uh, hang tough. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I listened to that to that show. I, I discovered Angus's show, and then you know started working backwards and just catching up on all of them. And I remember listening to that to that episode. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, Thank but you. I. I totally appreciate what Don, Don, Don said it really well. I mean, you like, I'm, I'm seeing this from different ways. I'm seeing it from the standpoint of I'm actually working on a book about my dad involving his unpublished writing of which there's quite a lot that I've found. So I'm seeing it from that standpoint. I'm seeing it from the standpoint of a guy who watched band of brothers a million times and Don and Jeff and I've talked about that. We know every line in it. Spears was actually one of my favorite characters in the thing. So I'm looking forward to learning more about him, but, and, and then I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you say from the standpoint of, you know, a family member, because I mean, we take like what you did with Spears and his family giving you material. I mean, not to always bring this up, but, but, you know, we did that with HBO in the Pacific. I mean, they took my dad's story and blared it out to, you know, and, and technicolor, so to speak. So, I can appreciate the sensitivity of, of, you know, wanting to approach that. Like you've been given something very precious and, and you have a lot of power in your hands to, to render something out of that and you want to do it justice. Yes. And I, I can certainly uh, appreciate your thoughts, um, especially having uh, working with, with Hollywood and you know, Hollywood is certainly a, a force to be reckoned with and on the topic of historical memory. <laughs> uh, but, you know, some other areas of, of sensitivity that, that we had to navigate carefully through, uh, one in particular that comes to mind is the story of the sergeant that Spears shot the day after D-Day. Uh, and in the miniseries and, and in the book, Band of Brothers Alike, uh, you know, this is presented as hearsay uh, to an mm-hmm. extent. Uh, but uh, one of the interviews that was provided to us by historian Mark Bando, and, and I'll also say that this book wouldn't have been possible without the, the research and assistance of, of Mark Bando, 
um, one of the, the interviews provided to us was from a 19-year-old paratrooper, a then 19-year-old paratrooper by the name of Art DeMarzio, who was a teenage kid from Ohio. He was really tall, hence the name Jumbo. And he was in Spears's platoon, jumped into D-Day with him, and he was witness uh, to this killing that took place on D plus one. Uh, and so one, one thing that, that we grappled with as authors, uh, we had the name of the sergeant in question. And my, my co-author uh, wanted to reveal his name. And, and we, we got into a, a rather spirited uh, moral debate, an ideological debate on the pros and cons of all this. Because on one hand, uh, there is perhaps a degree of historical merit to discussing this. Um, but on the other hand, as, as we dug a little bit deeper, uh, I found out that the, the sergeant in question still has siblings alive today. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Eric, there's no way that we can, in good conscience, reveal his name uh, because uh, the sergeant is listed as killed in action on D-Day. Um, to, to say that it was a, a cover-up may be going a little bit too far, but the, the paperwork was shuffled. The family members were told that he was killed on D-Day, and I, almost 80 years later, was not about to tell some brother or sister uh, who has thought their entire lives that their brother died a hero, uh, that he died in a state of drunkenness, in a state of belligerence, and his lieutenant killed him in an act of self-defense. Uh, and so those were the sorts of things that we had to grapple with. Uh, I don't think that concealing the name detracts from the story. The story's still there. The facts are still there. Uh, and it clarifies this one mystery uh, about Spears. And to an extent, uh, the, the series is slightly unfair to Spears because he's presented in the film as just, you know, he's just this lieutenant who apparently has this bloodlust. Yeah and uh, killed this sergeant uh, just because the sergeant was being insubordinate. It, it was an act of self-defense. Uh, this non-commissioned officer pulled a gun on his platoon leader. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons why it was never formally cleared up is that Spears's company commander, Jer Gross, was killed the following day as the company was pushing toward Carentan. Uh, and so uh, Spears never had the formal opportunity to clear his record. Uh, and that was one reason, another reason why it was essentially shoved under the rug to an extent. And so uh, that was one of the other uh, big issues that we debated. And I, I hope that we made the right decision in, in the long run. I, I, I feel better um, about it, how we handled it. Can I jump in with a question? Yeah, please, go ahead. So, so, Jared, you, you chose to not reveal the name. How, if I may ask, because the book is just coming out or has just come out. Is that correct? It came out about a month ago. Okay. So how, I mean, I don't, I'm not asking for any spoilers. Do, do you put a pseudonym? Do you just say an unnamed individual or would you rather not ask that question? We refer to him just as the sergeant. Okay. 
If I could say this, because I totally respect the way you handle that. If when my dad wrote with the old breed, he grappled with some similar types of things. I mean, you go through something like that with a group of guys, you're going to see people at their best. You're going to see people at their worst. Mm -hmm. And I know my mother and I've had conversations about that. There were some guys who they didn't see the best of them. Mm -hmm. And my, my dad saw these things happen. And when he wrote about it in his book, he purposely chose to not use their real names. And he, I remember him telling my mom, some of these guys or these guys have family members. Mm -hmm. And And so basically I'm just putting in a plug uh, and please take this in the proper spirit that I intended. If my dad were alive today, he would congratulate you and for handling it that way. Well, thank you. Those are are high words that I I really, really appreciate. Uh, And, you know, it's worth mentioning too, your dad was, was not the only person who changed names in his memoirs. Um, One of my favorite memoirs of the war is if you survive by George Wilson, who was an officer in my grandfather's division, the fourth infantry division. I have that. Uh, Yeah. And he changed a multitude of names. Was he uh, at Hurtgen Forest, Jared, or was he, he at was. Battle of the Bulge? Yes. Hurtgen, uh, he, okay. He arrived a few weeks after D-Day, uh, fought through Hedgerow Country, was in the Hurtgen Forest, the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and was it's he in a, 28th Division? Uh, the 4th Infantry Division. 4th Division, okay. Yes. All right. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a very searing account of uh, the war in Europe. Um, and just like with the old breed, it doesn't sugarcoat too much. And it's a very realistic and honest depiction of, of men at war. Well, another famous author for doing that, you'd be hard pressed to find a real Christian name in a helmet for my pillow. Robert Leckie uses nothing but nicknames. Yes. Sergeant Spearman. And, and I, and I was before Henry brought it up, I was going to say the same thing. Congratulations to you because a, could you imagine you're the uncle or the granduncle of this sergeant, and you've been told, hey, you know, he died a war hero. He died on D-Day. And then 80-some-odd years later, or if you're a, a grandkid or great-grandkid, not only do you find out he was killed because he was drunk and being belligerent, but he was killed by his someone on our side. It would just completely, A, devastate your, your visions of what your relative was, but could possibly sour your whole patriotic outlook on our country and our military at the time if you found all of a sudden not only did he not die you know quote unquote in a heroic manner because of uh, bad action on his part but he was killed by someone on his own team that could definitely destroy you so and then i was going to bring up the fact that yeah lecky there's not a single real name in there so i don't think anybody will have any anybody with you know at least of our age, who who thinks the things obviously a young person. Oh, who cares? It's, it's no. As you get older and as you have family and you start to realize what life is really about, anybody who has a family or at least their heads on their shoulders wouldn't take any umbrage or you know issue with the fact that you didn't name this person. Well, thank you for those for those kind words. Um, that makes me feel good, and even more so about our decision. Uh, but one of the other things to take into account, you know, we, we tried to offer context on these sorts of scenarios that we're playing out. Yeah. Because and, uh, in the, the not, the to interrupt, not, that, to, not to interrupt, but as far as that shooting goes, I think the book dedicated half a paragraph to it and the, and the series dedicated three lines. And so the fact that you're explaining it, I never knew it was self-defense. I just thought the guy was being belligerent and refused to get off his ass. And so I love the fact that you guys are taking on those things and providing context. That's what Spears really needs. He needs context to his character. 
Yeah, and it's worth mentioning, too, that this story about the sergeant uh, reached a, a rather legendary status within the regiment before the division even got back to England, before the summer was out. Uh, Don Malarkey first heard about this incident with Spears when he was eating rations in a Normandy church, and mm-hmm. he made a mental note to himself. He said, never get this guy as your platoon leader. <laughs> Uh, it didn't quite work out for him like that in the long run. Nope. Um, but uh, that was one of the really fascinating things is there were so many outlandish and conflicting stories about Spears that his men repeated. And it, it was it was like the fish, you know, the fishing story. The fish got bigger and bigger yep. uh, and to to the extent that even after the war, uh, these veterans started spreading rumors and stories that had no basis in fact. Uh, one story that, that emerged uh, is that after the war, Spears had become a police officer for the Boston Police Department and that he had been uh, fired from his position because of <laughs> cruelty that he showed to prisoners. Um, and that is not true in the least. He was never a police officer and you know, accordingly he was never fired. Uh, but, you know, it, Spears never tried to quiet any of these rumors or dis, or dispel them because they worked in his favor as an officer. No one was going to challenge him if they thought that he was going to gun them down. Yeah. Uh, but in regard to recollection and historical memory, his his fierceness did not serve him as well because uh, it it led to rather sour memories on sure. the parts of some of his men, um, some memories of which were unfounded and detached from reality. Uh, and so uh, myth-making can start very, very early, um, even before ink is put to paper. Absolutely. And uh, it's just, I don't know, and they kind of touch on that too in the series where he's, you know, when they're asked, he was asked about that and he's like, you know, essentially said there's, I'm not going to have any gold bricks under me, <laughs> you know, everybody's going to do their best. So, you know, why change it up? Is there any particular, uh, story or, um, factoid that you came across that none of us knew prior to, to the research of this book that really stood out to you as far as his character goes? There's a whole host of things sure. that, that I could mention. We gained a lot of interesting background on his upbringing uh, a lot of people don't know that he was actually born in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was an immigrant, uh, immigrated to the United States at age four. Uh, we learned a lot about uh, his adolescence in Boston. Um, he was essentially in what we would today call a junior ROTC program at a, a high school in Boston. And that was his first interaction with the military and his career progressed in a stepping stone fashion from there onward. Uh, We also learned a lot about his various marriages. Uh, He was married uh, four, perhaps five times. Um, The information on his possible fifth marriage uh, is a bit fuzzy. Um, We didn't even mention it in the book because we didn't have enough information on it. Now, were these post uh, post In short, when we think about the casualties of war, we think of physical wounds, we think Mm -hmm. about psychological wounds. Uh, But 
his domestic life became a casualty of war as well because he was essentially married to the army. Uh, he was gone for one or two years at a time. Yeah. He served in three foreign conflicts. He made four combat jumps by parachute into essentially hot landing zones. Uh, and all of this uh, created a lot of upheaval on the home front for sure. his various wives. Uh, and so I, I, think, I think that is a cost, an element of service to one's country that, that people need to think about more. What does it do to wives? What does it do to children? Uh, it, it's not merely affecting the combatants, but it's also affecting their loved ones at home. Uh, and so uh, there's this whole sort of soap opera element to his story uh, that we were able to flesh out to a bigger extent. Uh, and of course, one of the, 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 the I, two of the most fascinating chapters are the two final ones in my mind, because they examine uh, parts of his life that are completely neglected um, in other Band of Brothers themed books. And those concentrate on what he was doing during the Cold War. And then what was he doing in the final years of his life? And the final chapter was actually my favorite to write because we were able to, and, and Henry may be able to uh, uh, relate to this to an extent, but, you know, he was trying to come to terms with this celebrity that he suddenly found himself in. Uh, as a result of the book band of brothers and the subsequent mini series, just so we can develop a timeline for our, our listeners trying to figure out what sort of celebrity he saw, what year did he pass? I was, yeah, I was going to ask that. Thank you, Don. He, he passed away in 2007. Okay. So wow. he saw six okay. years. He saw he, five, uh, six he, years he was of it. Just then. a few weeks shy of his 87th birthday. Wow. And wow. so he lived six years past uh, the mini series. Uh, and so he had to, you know, confront this issue of, you know, suddenly getting fan mail. I was about to say his mailman's getting upset. <laughs> uh, autograph seekers oh, yeah. uh, coming to his home in Arizona. Uh, and, and so there, there were all of these conundrums that he had to confront. And to confront that as a normal person, let's say in your 40s is one thing. But to be at that advanced age and having your door being knocked on and, and some of the inconveniences that comes along with that notoriety at, at an advanced age got to be a lot harder to deal with than 30, 40, 50, 60s. And indeed, this is where, this was a point of big difference between he and Dick Winters. And because uh, Dick Winters, although a very humble man, he was a big cheerleader and a big promoter of Easy Company. And he wasn't doing it for any sort of mercenary reasons. He wanted to get the story of his men out there and into public consciousness. And, of course, he succeeded in flying colors. Uh, Winters was a historian in his own right. He kept meticulous files on the men in his company. And even into his 80s, um, it was almost like he could still do roll call and still do <laughs> you know, personnel reports and files on them. Uh, Spears was 180. He was completely opposite. Uh, and I think this is on the account that he was in the military 20 years longer than most of the men in easy company. He fought more wars. He saw more men die when he retired in 1964. He thereafter burned his uniforms 
he he didn't want to relive no. anything that he had gone through. Uh, and so I, that's the big point of separation. They have winners and spears have a lot of commonalities in regard to leadership, especially in combat situations. Uh, but in regard to the bravado and the enthusiasm about cataloging their experiences, they're two very, very different men in that regard. Obviously, this is pure speculation on our part, and it's the only thing you could really do at this point point is to speculate but you almost wonder if he kind of thought because of his longevity in the military if his band of brothers quote-unquote notoriety kind of overshadowed the lives of other people that he served with who lost whose were lost in these other conflicts as if their lives and their conflicts didn't matter as much as world war ii and i almost wonder if maybe there's a little bit of resentment there once again it's purely speculation but i i, I could definitely see where someone who's put in that amount of service fought in that many conflicts and probably lost that many men probably think, well, Hey, what about these guys? What's so great about this particular thing and not this? Yeah. And I, it's a very valid point. And it, on that note, it's worth mentioning uh, that Spears only ever attended two reunions uh, for easy company. Uh, the one was in 1947. It was right after the war. You know, he hadn't fought in Korea yet. He hadn't been in all of these other military conflicts. Uh, and so there was uh, less reticence on his part about going. Uh, and after that, uh, nobody from Easy Company saw him again until 2001, not even Dick Winters, despite the fact wow. that they had a very vibrant written and telephone correspondence uh, over the years. And uh, we, we, uh, we were told by, by one person that when Spears went to the 2001 reunion that was in France, um, whenever one of his fellow veterans would come up to him, uh, he was losing his hearing by this point, uh, he would yell out to them and say, what war? <laughs> um, it's, it's, it was, it's almost as if his subordinates from all of these conflicts kind of bled together sure. in his memory. And wow. he had trouble distinguishing who had served under him in what armed conflict. And so I think that's something that's very telling about his experiences. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I, I only thing I know of Spears is what I know from the book and the many series, but he came to easy company later in the war. Wasn't he a platoon leader in dog company during Breakwater Manor? That's correct. And so he didn't train with them at, you know, at, you know, at, at, in boot camp, he didn't have that history with them. He was basically brought in later, as we know, in uh, outside of the uh, Foy, a uh, uh, Foy when when Peacock, you know, did his Dyke, thing. Dyke, yeah, Dyke Peacock, folded did, up. Yeah. yeah. So he was, yeah, he was from Dog Company, correct? Yeah, and there's a very uh, long and convoluted timeline that leads up to uh, his ascendancy in Easy Company. When Spears uh, trained with the 506 at Camp Tacoa, uh, at that time he was in Charlie Company. Okay. And he remained in Charlie Company of the 506 until probably April or May of 1944. Uh, but he uh, often butted heads with his battalion commander, uh, Colonel Billy Turner. Uh, and, uh, the, the one, the one story that we were told that the root of their disagreements, uh, is that, uh, Spears was a Yankee and, <laughs> uh, Yankees. and that Turner was a, 
kind of a Confederate minded fellow from Georgia. Uh, and they had rather adverse uh, leadership styles and outlooks. And uh, Turner sought to be rid of Spears and uh, booted him to Dog Company, which simultaneously put Spears in another battalion. Uh, and so uh, it was this feud among officers on the eve of the Normandy invasion, no less, that ultimately sent Spears to Dog Company. And he served with Dog Company from June of 1944, or May or June of 1944, up until January of 1945, uh, when he assumes command of Easy Company during the attack on Foy. Now, forgive my nomenclature to uh, TV shows such as Sons Anarchy or The Mayans, but he almost had to feel like a nomad right before D-Day. He just getting shuffled from one group to the other right before this big jump. And, you know, you're going into this thing. And at this point, you got all, obviously, you, you know, some of the faces just through, you know, being in, in common environments. But to go into a situation like that, basically the new kid in school for, for all intents and purposes, he's got to be a little, a little like, okay, here we go. <laughs> Who do That's I? correct. Uh, Spears was very resentful of this sudden transfer sure. uh, because he had trained with Charlie company. He was thrown into a platoon of strangers. He didn't know his men. They didn't know him. Uh, and it was hardly the sort of good team building exercise uh, in the weeks building up to the biggest moment of their lives, which was the, the Normandy invasion. Uh, and so there was certainly no love loss uh, between Turner and Spears uh, and uh, unfortunately, Turner was, was also killed not too far away from Carentan in the days after the invasion commenced. And as uh, one fellow officer uh, made note of Spears, uh, Spears saw Turner's body lying in the roadway. And uh, Spears turned around and he said, by God, the Germans have saved me a job, <laughs> suggesting that he was planning on inflicting his own retribution on Turner for rotating him out of the company. Uh, and so that too is another vivid snapshot. Well, here's another fun round of the speculation game. So he gets sent to dog company the night, two nights, maybe three days before D-Day. We know D-Day plus one, we had the run in with the quote unquote sergeant. One could speculate or even argue that maybe if he had more time with these group of men, the quote-unquote sergeant maybe would have had some history, perhaps even some rapport, maybe more likely to have listened to him opposed to what did occur because I'm sure that sergeant might, who are you, you know, who are you to tell me sort of th issue, whereas once again, speculation game, if they had trained together and known each other for months on end, perhaps even a year or so, that that whole situation could have had a completely different outcome. I think that's a wise bit of speculation. I'd never taken that into account, uh, but I, I think it's a very valid one because uh, by contrast, if you look at somebody like Dick Winters, mm -hmm. he's known the men in his platoon for almost two years by that point. And, uh, and so I, I think that's a, a very valid observation on your part. Henry. Yeah. So let me ask this question. I mean, we're, we're the, the incident with the Sergeant, Jared, that was on D plus one. Correct. So I'm, I'm thinking back to Band of Brothers, uh, and I rewatched it here a few months ago. Um, but th the thing that stands out in my mind is, you know, the incident with the POWs, you know, which 
you through the entire series we're thinking okay he really you know supposedly he has shot one of his own guy you know but um well i guess that was the sergeant he was referring to in that line but up it's up till the very end when they're in the church and you know spears he kind of is like look didn't you ever know that tursk just wanted people to think he was mean and stuff as blah 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 so the, the business with the pow's did not happen right i mean that was all just a big rumor it did happen uh, and it, it happened on probably a, a bigger scale than what the series suggests. Okay. Um, there's, there's a few different ways that, that I could dissect this, uh, but I'll start off with a newspaper article that Spears kept for the remainder of his life um, amongst his belongings uh, that eventually found a home at the Gettysburg Museum of History uh, was a clipping uh, and the headline to it, and I, I paraphrase here, uh, but it, it said that Weymouth Paratrooper, and that's the Boston neighborhood that Spears lived in, Weymouth Paratrooper responsible for the deaths of 13 Nazis on D-Day. Uh, and so uh, Spears uh, admitted uh, to reporters, um, interestingly enough, he uh, subsequently uh, was broadcast on a, a radio program, a popular radio program in the United States. And uh, so in the first 24 hours of D-Day, uh, he killed over a dozen Germans. And probably seven or eight of those were the results of executions uh, that, that he committed. Um, now, once again, uh, it, it's important to offer context to these Please. sorts of circumstances uh, because uh, Spears was not killing Nazis for the pure joy of killing Nazis. Uh, the first three uh, that he and two other of his men executed uh, were perhaps in the first minutes after they landed in Normandy. And the harsh reality of the moment is that paratroopers had nowhere to put prisoners. Mm -hmm. Right. It was dark. There was confusion. Enemy was potentially around every corner. And Spears told his men, we can't take them with us. Uh, the prisoners would have slowed them down, uh, possibly betrayed their position if they were to encounter more Germans along the way. Uh, and so it, it was uh, a very harsh decision that he had to make. Uh, but ultimately, he determined that the survival of his platoon mates uh, superseded the survival of prisoners that would otherwise be entrusted to his care. Um, and it's also worth mentioning, too, that uh, there was uh, an order handed down from a rather informal divisional level by Division Commander Maxwell Taylor, and he very candidly instructed his paratroopers to take no prisoners, take no prisoners until the paratroopers are relieved. Uh, and the fact that uh, Germans were also committing atrocities on a widespread level uh, just fueled the animosity even further. Sure. And the best way that I can phrase it is that there were plenty of people on both sides that had cold blood on their hands on the night of D-Day. Uh, a few hours later, after uh, Spears and his men uh, grew their contingent and gathered up some more men from Dog Company near the Marmion Farm, not too far from the coast, uh, Spears and his men encountered uh, another small handful of prisoners, and uh, the Germans very well may have had the intention of surrendering 
Uh, but Spears gunned them down before they had the opportunity to do so. Once again, and it may sound cold and harsh by our standards today, uh, Spears had an objective. He had to move. He had to push his men onward, and he wasn't about to be slowed down by hauling prisoners back to the rear from where he just came. Uh, And so uh, those are the stories uh, about uh, the prisoners and Likewise, uh, it's worth mentioning that Spears was not exceptional in this regard. He was certainly not alone in in these sorts of acts. And uh, once again, um, taking that bit of context into account, I think, is really important in understanding the man in the moment. Once again, the name of the book is Fierce Valor, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. Um, Now, we know with the Dick Winters book you wrote that due to your co-author, Eric Dorr and his access to the museum, you guys had one of the, obviously the content and the stories in the book were fantastic and I strongly recommend it. But one of the other nice things about that book is you guys had some very cool documents, photos, relics. Some may even say un previously un you know, published photos did you have access to any sort of inf- – uh, are we going to see some cool photos and some snippets of some handwritten letters and artifacts as we did with the other book? Yes, that is correct. Um, as is the case with Hang Tough, there's a very nice colored template section in the middle of the book uh, that shows some of Spears's artifacts, um, including a, a Luger and a Luftwaffe dagger that he brought home as war trophies, uh, his – Uh, various decorations and ribbons that he wore on his chest. He snipped those off of his uniform before he disposed uh, of his uniform. Uh, There's uh, a copy of a summer 1945 letter that he wrote to Forrest Guth, which uh, shows a a surprisingly uh, sweet and tender side, a sentimental side of Spears. Uh, And so uh, we we were able to to show kind of the other dimensions of him. You know, he just wasn't a hard-nosed you know, killer who was cold and calculative. Uh, he he did have good relationships with many of his men, and it comes out in in moments like that. Um, but uh, there are a lot of photos from the museum. Family members provided us some other ones, and I, I really think readers will enjoy some of the visualization that's provided in, in Fierce Fowler accordingly. Henry did. Did Spears have any children? I don't think it, I don't know if we've addressed that. I know he was married five times or four. Yes, he he had at least uh, one child, um, a son who was mm-hmm. born during the war. Uh, okay. Spears's first wife was a, a British war bride who herself was in the British military. Um, okay. And uh, the 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 son is is still alive uh, today. Um, and uh, he, he himself subsequently served in, in the British military. Um, but he, Spears may have had uh, an, another child with, with one of his wives, but we weren't able to connect the dots fully enough to uh, draw any firm conclusions. And so um, some things are, are bef- best left unsaid if, if you're unsure, sure, um, right. uh, factually speaking. Um, and, and so it's, it's possible that, that there's another child or two out there um, that we're unaware of. Um, but uh, he had some whirlwind marriages uh, and we, we tried to 
Um, there's, there's a lot that could be speculated, but we tried not to do that in regard to his love life too much. We really tried to stick to the facts. Um, but he, he did have a son. It, when you spoke earlier about family members and, and, you know, the fame that came after Band of Brothers, it, it just kind of reminded me of some of the conversations I had with Adam Makos. Uh, you know, Adam worked closely with, with me uh, when, when the Pacific was being made, and we got to be really good friends. And, and we talked a lot about, you know, Band of Brothers and Dick Winters, and Adam, of course, and his family got to be very close to Dick Winters. And, and you know, and I, and I think one of the things I asked him, because, again, I was kind of going through it from my own perspective with the HBO people. I was like, well, what's it like dealing with, with Dick Winter's family now that he's, a, he's getting all this attention? And, and I remember Adam said they, they just want it to all go away. You know, Dick could not be nicer. And as you said, Jared, a cheerleader for the guys and wanting to bring attention to him. But his family, they're just like, Ugh, you know. It, it certainly, um, in my mind, it, it inflicted a toll on, on Dick, um, a lot of that celebrity. I, I think the pressure placed on him to be the public spokesperson for Easy Company uh, really uh, placed a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of pressure on him in his final years. Uh, and, you know, he had to have his address unlisted in the phone book. He had to start getting his mail at a PO box. Uh, and so uh, it, it's in the realm of possibility that that celebrity uh, took a few years off of his life. Wow. Uh, uh, so it, you know, the, the, the pressure of being put in the spotlight, um, it's, it's understandable why Spears perhaps wanted to avoid that. Perhaps he had a sense of, of what was forthcoming. And once again, that book is The Fierce Valor, the, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. I assume people can get that on Amazon and at your website and anywhere else fine books are found? Wherever fine books can be found, yes, sir. Now, before we let you go, um, two, a couple things. Down here in Florida, we're struggling ever since the pandemic has kind of lifted. Um, at our Living History events, some of the numbers have been down. How are things up there in PA where you're at now that things are opening up a little bit? I know you. there's been a few events, and I know you have a, actually an online event, which I want you to get a plug-in for, coming up on June 24th. But how has things rebounded up there in your area when it comes to the public Living History events? Uh, things are, uh, fortunately for us, pretty much back to normal. Uh, you know, uh, for some reason, Pennsylvania seems to just be the mecca of living history, whether it be Civil War or World War II or, or something like that. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the Furious Fourth, my living history organization, uh, we have 10 events uh, scheduled uh, for this year. Uh, as I said, it, it's largely back to normal. Fantastic. Back to uh, pre-pandemic mode. Uh, and so uh, we're just happy to be out there talking with people, um, you know, of course, and there's the added benefit is that everything's outdoors and fairly safe out sure. outdoors at this stage of the game. Uh, but we're just really happy to be back out there after a three-year hiatus uh, on on the living history front. So, yeah, speaking we're, we're happy of, to be doing it. Speaking of history, it looks like um, 6.30 p.m. or 8 p.m. Friday, June 24th, you're doing an online um, living history seminar. Is that the WW uh, World War II Altoona? Uh, yeah, well, that that's a walking tour. A walking yeah, tour. And, uh, yeah, it's Fantastic. it's not online. It will uh, it will be uh, in person, and that's uh, 
you know, just a, a, a walking tour of my hometown of Altoona, Pennsylvania. And, you know, and I think, uh, I think things like that are a good way of expanding the notion of living history because practically every town in the United States has a World War II history. Sure. Um, it's just a matter of doing the research and presenting it. Uh, and so I think there's really vivid and engaging ways that we as historians can present kind of the macro picture and the micro picture at the same time. Like, what was going on in your hometown during World War II? And that's the you best know, how way. How was this building being used as a plant? Or, you know, how was this building being used as a recruitment center, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. I mean, it's, I, I think it's a really fun way to bridge the gap, uh, placing local history within a global context. Absolutely. It's more interesting for the participant to, to learn what happened here opposed to, oh, this happened over in Indiana and I, well, I'm here. So it definitely makes it more relatable uh, for the spectator. Let's talk about your YouTube channel, fella. Real history. How's that going? For those you don't know, he has a great YouTube channel where he sits down with historians and sometimes um, active personnel and they go over military movies. I see you did. I'm so happy you did one on glory. That is such a fantastic movie. And I, I, I almost think not the, you know, living historians and all that, but I, that's almost one of those movies. And as far as just general population go, that kind of got lost to history. I mean, I don't know too many people who weren't into history that, oh, yeah, I liked Glory. That's a good watch. I love that movie. That's one of those movies I cannot turn off. If I, Even if I'm flipping through and it's three-quarters of the way done, I'm, I'm yeah. grabbing a soda and I'm there. Most definitely. Uh, the, the channel, uh, we started a year ago, a good friend and I, and that was another pandemic project. And uh, as, in essence, what it is, is is that it's a history versus Hollywood channel. Uh, something that's grown in popularity on YouTube are these so-called reaction mm -hmm. videos where people oh, I've seen those. Yeah. sit down and watch something for the first time. And, you know, they, they, you know, have their, their mouths wide open, shocked about something that they've seen or they've reacted to. Uh, and so we, uh, took that concept and refined it a little bit. And rather than just reacting to a movie, I try to offer historical commentary to what people are seeing, how how does uh, fact and fiction differentiate here, uh, and, and so it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I love talking about historical films. Uh, even the worst of historical films have a bigger outreach than the most successful and the most popular of history books. That, that's just a sad reality. Of what so what you're you're saying your episode on Wind Talkers got a bunch of views then. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done wind talkers yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, scorching that one. Uh, uh, but, you know, um, and I think one reason why the, the channel has found an audience is because everyone watches movies. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone has seen a lot of these films and it's a really good foundation for getting into these deeper conversations about the past. Sure. Uh, and hopefully if I do something right on it, uh, people will, go and pick up a book that I suggest at, at the end of uh, each episode, if that's the case. You know, that's kind of how I feel about living history. It's like after my weekend's done, even if it's only one person, if I can get one person when they get home, whether they're flipping through the TV and something World War II related's on and they stop for even if it's for a minute and a half, whereas the day before they would just kept on going, or if they're walking through a bookstore and they see a World War II themed book and they actually stop and pick it up, even if they don't buy it, if they just 
you know, even if the seed is just planted, whereas three days prior to them coming to the event, they wouldn't have put any second thought into it. To me, that's a win. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, whether it's a movie or a local history tour or a field trip, uh, you know, it only takes one spark mm-hmm. to ignite that passion or that interest. And so I'm, I'm out there trying to light fires as often as I can through as many means and modes as I can. And uh, hopefully it catches on for a few people. It's now that time of the episode, Henry. What you reading? I just started volume two of Ian Toll's uh, Pacific War Trilogy, uh, Pacific Crucible, or no, Conquering Tide. Pacific Crucible was the first one. So Conquering Tide. I just started that. I'm about mm, 40 pages in. Really enjoying that. And Jared, what you reading? I am reading a book. Uh, that was published by Turner Classic Movies uh, called Hollywood Victory. And it is a history of Hollywood during World War II, how movie stars and moguls were doing their part to contribute to the war effort. And it's, uh, it's been a fascinating uh, read. Uh, if you're interested in 1940s culture or classic cinema, I would really, really recommend it. I've learned a lot of great new stuff. That, that's funny. I, I got up a second time because that reminded me of a book someone got me for Christmas a while back. It's the cartoons of World War II, and it's literally an entire cover to cover of just I propa- have that book. propaganda posters and cartoons. It's, it's uh, definitely a, an interesting read. The book I'm reading, I just got into because, as we all know, I, I finally uh, finished up The Lonely Vigil about the Coast Watchers of the Solomons, which, Jared, if you have not read that book, I strongly suggest it came out in, like, 1977. It's got a horrible watercolor, like, painting cover on it. Ignore that. It's a fantastic book. But I'm going down the, um, no pun intended, the submarine aisle. I had the books in the other room. I'm currently reading The Fatal Dive, Solving the World War II Mystery of the USS Grunion. And it's actually written by the author and... um, supplied by information from his kids who actually went out despite everyone's um, telling them that it would be impossible to find the submarine because of where it was located or where they believed it was located off the coast of Alaska, that it was just too deep, too far gone. No one wanted anything to do with it. And um, learning the history of their father and the men who served on that submarine and just the history of that submarine in general is pretty darn interesting. I'm into the first chapter, which is why I don't have a whole lot of information laid out on you guys, but um, I'll provide some on the upcoming episodes. Jared, anything you want to plug other than uh, what we've already covered or you can plug that again. I just want to say uh, this is the first time I've had the opportunity to uh, converse in person, so to speak with uh, Henry. And uh, it's a real honor because uh, I've I've long time been a student of your family history and the experiences of your dad. And uh, I I hope we'll get to chat further about history and uh, hopefully uh, sometime in person uh, as, as things progress. But uh, it, it's been really, really nice uh, talking with you, sir, for the first time. Oh, here today. wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jared. I very much appreciate that. And I'm I'm looking forward to reading the Spears book um, very oh, much. Go on and order here I shortly. thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, too. Jared, Thank you. W- got to ask, what's, what's – I'm sure you got something already, like in pre – written maybe your storyboarding or whatever the the author equivalent of storyboard is what's what what's the um obviously you don't want to give it away but what's the theme or the storyline of your next book i know you got something you're not just putting the old keyboard away 
Yeah, um, I, I don't let the grass grow uh, too thick or anything like that. Um, I'm, I'm essentially working on, on two things right now, uh, one of which is my dissertation, okay. uh, which, we, which I may have uh, mentioned on, on a previous episode, but I'm, I'm examining in that the World War II history of the Gettysburg battlefield. Okay. And that may sound like an oxymoron, uh, but uh, like many of our national parks, uh, Gettysburg mobilized during World War II. Uh, there were top secret psychological operations units really? that were training in the park. There were German prisoners of war that called the fields of Pickett's Charge home for two years. And of course, uh, Gettysburg took on a, a rather sublime national symbolism during the war years as well, especially in the context of uh, the Gettysburg Address. Um, another one uh, that I'm in the very, very uh, initial phases of, um, I'm in conversation with a World War II veteran of the 8th Air Force as we speak uh, about potentially co-writing his memoirs uh, with him. Uh, and so that one is in uh, its very, very earliest phases. Well, uh, definitely it, it has a lot of potential. And I think there's a really great story to be told in it. If that comes to fruition, we'll definitely have to have you back on. Cause Jeff, who's not here tonight, he is all things eighth air force. That's his, that's his like focus right now. But, uh, well, and, and Jared, you know, that's a great thing, man, with masters of the air coming up. Yeah. I think there'll be a lot of public interest in it. Uh, and you know, I think putting a human face to mm -hmm. some of these stories, I, I think it'll be very timely. Uh, and I'm, and this veteran is really excited about it. He, he really wants to get his story out there. Uh, and so I, um, I, it's, it has a lot of good prospects, I think. Not to put a shameless plug, but while we're on the topic, um, one of the things we used to do here and Jared can attest to this, it's getting harder and harder and harder to find, um, veterans who, are still able to tell their story. So if you guys have any veterans that you know of, or maybe a family member knows of that wants to tell their story or has the ability to do so, whether it's via a phone call on the old fashioned landline or zoom, send us an email to mail call at WTSP world war com, And who knows, maybe if they're in Jared's location, we can send him out there in person and he can talk to them as well. But yeah, please send us an email, mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. I was going to let you go, Jerry, but I thought I'd be doing our friend Henry a huge disservice because as he kind of touched on, he's working on some stuff. And uh, Henry, I want to give you the opportunity to talk to a multiple published author about maybe um, things he can advise you on about uh, the writing world and getting stuff published. Well, yeah. Um, so, Jared, I've got um, an article that's about to be published in World War II magazine. It's going to be in the autumn issue, um, which for me, that's a huge honor. You know, I mean, I'm not like you. I have how many books have you written? Uh, I've written or co-written nine books. That's yeah. So um, that's that's amazing. So, you know, I, I have the day job where I go sit in a cubicle and do something completely unrelated. But um uh, yeah, I've got an article coming out in World War II magazine. It'll be, uh, and Don, that was the only thing I was going to plug, was just say I found out it will be in the autumn issue. But since you you kind of segued that, Don, I'm, so Jared, the, what I'm trying to do is my dad's book was published at 315, 312 pages. The original manuscript for that book was over 820 typed pages. Oh, wow. 
it was under lock and key at the archives at Auburn University here in Alabama, where my dad's papers are stored. And a lot of people through the years have wanted to, to get access to it. Uh, we, as in my brother, my mother, myself, we, we have uh, demurred on that. And I have, back in October, I got a copy of the unedited, uncut manuscript from the archivist. They were very, very kind and very cooperative and, and willing to help me. Um, and that came about as a result of a conversation with my mom. And she said, look, there's a lot of material in that manuscript that got cut from your dad's book. I wish you would do something with that and try to do it while my mom's 95. Uh, and she said, I wish you could do that while I'm still around to see it. So I'm like, okay, mom, I got it. Well, who would better know than your mom? Cause a lot of people don't realize this. She's the one who wrote it all down when your dad was dictating it to her and going over the notes. Yeah. She, she typed the first half of the manuscript, Jared. Um, and so, and then my dad's secretary at the university of Montevallo typed the Okinawa part, but, um, and, and I mean, look, I, this is, you're, you're the guest. I didn't want to turn this into discussing all that, but no, not at all. I'm, I'm more than happy to, I'm honored to be included on, on such a conversation. Uh, have, have you read the, the entirety of it? Yeah. Yet? So to, to, I've, I've developed a game plan. I got the manuscript. They sent it to me via PDF. I printed it out. Um, for I got Kinko's, I took it on a thumb drive, got them to print it back in November. It came out each, it was four separate PDFs, each one about 200 pages long. And so what I did was I got Kinko's, when they printed it, I got them to print it out in these coil bound books. So I've got four of these and you're, you're looking at one of the pages oh, of wow. it. This is, this is like the second day on Peleliu. Where I highlighted in yellow is stuff that didn't get published. Oh, wow. I went through and I made notes in the margins after I highlighted every bit of this. And I wore out about four highlighters. <laughs> Only? Of what didn't get published. Wow. And then I went back and I made notes in the margins. And then when I got done with all that, back in around like March, April, I started sitting down. I started getting some ideas and I started writing. And I've written about 90 pages a lot of which is bringing over the unpublished stuff, but then I'm, I'm weaving it in with my memories of talking to my dad. You know, I've got, as you can see, I've got a lot of his artifacts here on the wall. I do. Um, and so he and I were very close and we talk a lot. So I have a lot of memories of things we talked about. I mean, a lot of the stories that, that guys like Don and you have read through the years in his book and China Marine too, if you, if you read Fantastic that. Fantastic book. You know, I heard those stories growing up. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I'm doing, man. That's, I, you know, um, I've got some, like John McManus is really in my corner. He's really excited. Um, and I've reached out <clears throat> to a gentleman named John Hoffman, who's a retired Marine colonel, who's written some fine Marine history and Army stuff, too. Um, but they're they're really excited by what they've seen. That's not to say that it, I mean, look, man, this is early stages. Yeah. You know, I'm 25% through the original manuscript. Uh, I was doing some writing today and I'm on about page 216, 217 of the original manuscript. So that ought to give you some idea of how far I have to go. I, I you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I have a day job and I'm thankful for it, but man, if I, if I could work on this five days a week, it would get done so much quicker. Yeah. And I could spend more time talking to guys like you who could say, <laughs> okay, here's some advice, 
you know. Well, so let me, yeah, well, I, ideas are just rolling through my head like marbles um, at the moment. Uh, but I I would love to further that conversation with you, and perhaps uh, Don would be kind enough to uh, share your email address with please. me. Please. Yeah, and, uh, that would be uh, perhaps uh, the best way that I could sure. offer my input. But broadly speaking, yeah, I would say the best advice I can give is keep at it. Okay. Uh, because uh, you know a lot of people start writing books, and a lot fewer of them finish them. Uh, and Good so the, the best the best thing that I can say is keep at it. You have the story. You have the personal connection. Uh, there's uh, a degree of celebrity, uh, rightfully so, to your father's story. There is an audience out there. Uh, and so the best thing that I can say is just keep on it. Uh, do it for him. Do it for your mom. Do it for your family. Do it for all of us who are interested. Uh, and th- that's the best wisdom I can Im- impart uh, in this mo- uh, final moment of the show. Thank I th- you. I think those are the perfect words, and we are going to do you guys a disservice and continue this off the air. But for those of you listening, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, and you can see all the links to Jared's book and his other books, as we always include in each episode, as well as links we're going to put up for Henry's appearances on World War II TV, etc. And for myself, Jared, Henry, and Jeff, who is not here, we will talk to you all next week. Thank you guys so much for hanging out. And as always, you can also do us the favor by heading over to patreon.com, look up Digital 410, or go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Patreon link, like and subscribe, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production.